Yes, I'm curious to hear how everyone's doing and how your practice is going and all those kinds of things. Mine kind of went out the window. Oh, no. Yeah, because I'm working full time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I've still been watching the mind. Well, that, that's good. So, you've just been not sitting at all? No, I, I have been sporadically. Sporadically? Yeah, especially on my days off. Right. But I have even, even some on not my days off, but it's, yeah. Well, you know, you, you, uh, <clears throat> Would really be good if you could uh, schedule your day in such a way that you could practice on a regular basis. It makes such a difference. It does. I hear your voice in my back pocket saying, <laughs> get up and sit. What do you think is the obstacle in your way? Hmm. That's a good question. Probably just not sitting still. I'm always running. Um, okay, but that's not the obstacle. That's um, the result. That's the result. So the yeah. obstacle is... Yeah. Always running means you're not stopping and sitting. <laughs> so. It's a good one to meditate on. There. Yeah, I mean, what really is, because you're never really too busy to sit. That's right. Or you're yeah. never really too tired. Well, I have I have sat when I was tired and, and have kind of fallen asleep, but at least yeah. I make, you know, like yeah. five or ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say you're never too tired to sit. Hello, Pam. Welcome. So good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. And is Tim there with you? He is. Oh, yes, wonderful. I'm happy to say. Oh, good. So. Are you well? I'm very well. Good. Had a great time in California. So this this is a this is a very important thing. You can be too tired to practice. That's true. But the question is, you know, why did you let yourself get, get that tired before you got around to practicing? And the same thing, you know, when you say you're so busy, it's what you have to ask is why you haven't uh, made whatever changes are necessary so that, so that you do practice. You see what I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. It's, there's a motivation factor there. Uh, a, a motivation factor, uh, and maybe a, a failure to recognize that what's necessary. And then, uh, instead of a motivation factor, let me put it this: there's a priority. There's a priority question. You know, 
you're not you're not really giving it that high priority. And and then if you think you are, uh, then you're not recognizing the fact that in, in order in order for it to happen, we're going to actually have to make the effort to to look at the to look at the way you spend your time and make adjustments in that. Because I can see that you could be you could feel like it's a priority and you could feel highly motivated, but um, if you don't if you don't recognize the need to sit down and structure your time, then uh, not only does meditation not happen, but uh, you don't make the changes necessary so that it can happen. There's always something else, some other commitment you've made, and so forth. So think about that one, and talk. About, we'll talk about it some more if you want. Yeah, the the best thing is when I first get up. I just can't get out of bed, but I mean, once I force myself and I'm mm-hmm. up, I shouldn't be able to do it. Do it so. And I, I agree with you. For most people, the best time is when you get out of bed. Yeah. And the it's a difficult choice when you are not fully awake, fully aware, and you don't have all of the resources of your uh, uh, understanding of why you want to do it and your resolve to do it in place. And... Uh, causing you to stay in bed until you have no choice but to hurry to get wherever you need to be. Very common story. But you take it a step backwards and say, okay, why are you why are you so tired and in need of rest when you wake up that you prefer to stay in bed and rest longer rather than meditate? Probably has something to do with when you went to bed and you know the rest of your days. So the, uh, if, you, if you're serious about practice, and I think you are, this is really where it begins. It's stage one. You have, to, you have to make the commitment and you have to make the changes necessary to keep the commitment and you have to figure out the things that are getting in the way. Best time to meditate is, you know, what time of the morning is best time? It allows you to get where you need to get afterwards. They get up by, by five. You have to get up by five. Mm-hmm. That means that you have to go to bed by, I don't know how much sleep you need, but probably by nine. That's right. And that's what I need to do. And mm-hmm. I just haven't been able to. Well, sometimes I have. Well, but this is going to have to stop because I can't. Because otherwise I feel sick during the day if I don't right. sleep, yeah. get enough sleep. Absolutely. It's yeah. affecting everything. Affects everything. And, and, you know, if you can't go to bed by nine, you have to look at what you're doing that's keeping you from and mm-hmm. what you can give up or change. Yeah. So, do, do those things, you know. Don't, uh, yeah, don't. Life's too short. Now, you is. don't even know how short it is. Yeah. I know. feels like you'll live forever. No, no. The way I'm running around burning myself out, it's <laughs> Nine o'clock is a good time. That's good to see. It's good to see you, Tim. Tim, yeah. I can't remember your name. Terry. Terry. Okay. 
good to see you. And, and uh, I think the last couple of evenings I was here, you, you, you didn't come, but I wanted to tell That's you that, right. that supper you brought me that one night was just fantastic. I just really enjoyed that. Thank you for that. So, yeah, how, how the rest have you been? How's your practice going? So-so, not, not terrible. Uh, so-so. But an uh, interesting piece of synchronicity. I uh, enrolled in uh, truck driving school, and my classmates were Peter and Tree. Ah, right. That is some in- interesting synchronicity. And how's the truck driving school going? Oh, I'm trying to learn how to back up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can see that would be a major challenge, yeah. Stressful, but it's a lot of fun. That sounds like a life skill. Yeah. Learning how to back up. Yeah. Find out how you got there in the first place. Now, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 A lot of parallels there. Because in life, when you need to back up, you can never get, you can never back up the same way you got there. That's right. <laughs> In terms of your your practice and so so, is it, is it because of the truck driving school or other factors? Uh, getting yeah, the same some of the same things of having to be up and gone in the morning. But I've been told that I can meditate at a stoplight, however briefly. Yes, so you can. I'm I'm better at integrating that in my life. So when I get when I do get a break and before I leave the house in the morning, often or at least on the way to school, I'll at least let it in and start counting the breaths. Well, that's that's very, very good. And you should be doing that too. But but that's really best as as sort of uh, an auxiliary to, to sitting and meditating. So, you know, getting in at least half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that. It's, but I, I know, every time we make a change in our lives, schedule changes, and then uh, it's, it's, uh, we have to start all over in terms of figuring out how to make time for, for practice. And then once again, it's a question of, what is the priority? <coughs> Well, are there any, uh, any any questions that anyone has, or problems, or uh, any more feedback you want to give me about how your practice is going? I really want to hear. I really care. Of course, I want to push you, but it's not just about that. It's about encouraging. I, I, uh, I have the two confessions. 
Uh-huh. Yes. Um, I've had a difficult time over the last several weeks. Um, we've had a family emergency, mm. and uh, it has required a great deal of um, time and um, the resulting weariness and so on. So um, practice has kind of slid away. But that's a temporary condition. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, since we were all at last here together here in this room, um, I've continued to try to integrate um, my meditation and the insights that one gets and, and trying to bring it into my life, I think similar to what you were speaking of. Because it seems like, you know, unless one can do that, or at least, I'll speak for myself, unless I can do that, then all the sitting on the cushions, you know, I mean, it has to bear fruit in my life. Mm -hmm. And in how I relate to people, how I, how my attitudes and, and how I treat people, and just how I drink in life and, you know, live in life. So that's been, um, been coming along coming along, you know, when I speak with someone or a student or something, you know, just really looking at them and really listening and, and opening myself more to that process of what's going on for them and what's going on between us and, and um, maintaining um, a more balanced uh, presence with people within myself. So that's kind of what's been going on for me. That, that is so very important and, you know, ideally we would be mindful continuously throughout the day and to the degree that the activities we're engaged in permits that uh, when you're, whatever it is you're doing, you can always be mindful of your activities, mindful of your of your mind, of your reactions and, and your motivations and uh, that is so very important. But just as just sitting on the cushion isn't enough, you know, just practicing mindfulness in your daily life, it's, it's very wonderful but there is a limit uh, and, and a to a large degree, the limit is uh, the ability you have to be, to maintain mindfulness and to remember to be mindful. So, and that, that comes from the time spent on the cushion. And then there's all those special things that happen that can only happen when the mind becomes truly still, truly focused, and turns inward and starts to see what's really going on behind the curtain. Well, you know, it's probably not at all unusual that, you know, this time of the year, after the holidays, it's, it's pretty disruptive. It's easy to not be able to practice and family emergencies and taking up new courses of training and starting new jobs and you know 
But then isn't there always something like that? So, on the one hand, it's very understandable. But on the other hand, we need to recognize that, you know, it's, it, that's the way life is. Everything's always changing. And just as soon as we get things all the way we want them, something happens to make it different. Well, my retreats in California were very interesting. The first one was 10 days, and then the second one was uh, six days. And they, uh, these are almost all Asian people, Taiwan or China. Not entirely, but all except for um, well, I guess all except for one person in each of the retreats. So, <laughs> so out of 14. You know, and it's an interesting thing that uh, I've learned that Asian people really have trouble with the concept of silence, noble silence. So we had uh, we had uh, in the first retreat um, people talking and then people sending notes and then people getting upset with each other. And about halfway through the retreat, you know, had had to get really strict. <laughs> you know, and, and then it started. Uh, then it started going really well. But uh, was very good, very successful in terms of the progress that I saw in the meditators and both of the retreats. So that must be a cultural thing, the, 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 the frequent discourse. Yes, that's definitely the feeling that I have because, uh, you know, with, uh, with Westerners at a retreat keeping noble silence, I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of slip-ups here and there and you know there's always somebody that uh, will start little whispered conversations with someone but it's usually but there seems to be it, it, it's a whole different thing the Asians are you know it is their culture is so they all communicate with each other all the time so interconnected and uh, you know, I think it is a, a cultural thing The other thing is that uh, food is very important for understandable reasons, culturally. Um, I found out that uh, a very common uh, greeting amongst Asians is, uh, are you hungry or have you eaten? You know, not how are you, but have you eaten? <laughs> not how are you doing, but are you hungry? <laughs> Can I get you something to eat? And uh, another thing that happened at this, at both of these retreats, um, uh, people, as part of their tasks, 
need to help out in the kitchen in preparation for the meals. And so they would get quite carried away and they would start insisting on not just doing the minimum necessary, but creating some elaborate dish or something that was totally unnecessary. So it was a lot of fun, though. (laughs) Did did you teach it like you do here in that you had a subject and, and went through an outline? And if so, what what was the subject of the retreat, or do you approach it differently? Well, these are predominantly meditation retreats. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's an hour uh, each day just before lunch where I do question and answers about practice and provide meditation instruction. So in the course of the retreat, the instruction gets more detailed. <clears throat> and then there's a period in the evening before the final sit of the day where we do a Dharma talk, but otherwise it's all meditation. Starting two sits before breakfast, and then I do interviews with everyone every second day during part of the day. So uh, the weekend retreats I've done here have been teaching retreats, and they're predominantly teaching a topic and going through an outline. So it's it's more like the weekend retreats that... uh, uh, we've done it in the stronghold, but going on for 10 days. And uh, uh, TCMC is sponsoring a retreat at the stronghold, um, I think, in, end of March, beginning of April. And, and you're going to you're going to manage that, is that right? Um, we'll have to talk about that. I was thinking yes, mm-hmm. but I have to work in the middle there, so we'll, we'll uh, try to work something out. But I'd love okay. to. I think that goes March 27th through April 5th, so it's a Friday to through. It's through a Friday Sunday. to Sunday, yeah. Sunday, yeah. At the stronghold. Yeah. It's Oh, but you're you're going to have to work. That week, I, yeah, no uh, so you won't be able to do it. Huh? We'll, we'll talk. Okay. Well, maybe somebody else will. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. But anyway, I had a wonderful time while I was gone. Great, great people there. Um, good meditators. Great retreat. Great location. But I missed all of you, and it's good to be back. Yes? I was going to add good food, but I wonder if you noticed in any of the retreats a sort of disinterest in food that developed along the way. Was well, the attitude pretty consistent? <laughs> um, well, uh, with the, the Asian people, the interest in food seems to be always there from day one. But um, at almost any retreat, uh, the, the, the meals become a real focal point you know, the, of the day. It's the, uh, people really look forward to the meals. And that seems to be universal. Every retreat I've ever been at. You know. so. 
That's quite understandable. I mean, it, it's the it, it's the one it, it's the one thing that uh, gives the, gives a person's day some variety and uh, uh, sensual indulgence. One of our deepest attachments. How many of you are planning to come in to uh, Richard Schenkman's uh, workshop this weekend? Do you know if it's still open? I believe, yes, I believe there's still spaces available. What are the times? It's tomorrow evening, I think starting at about 6.30, something like that. And then... I believe nine to four thirty on Saturday and Sunday. Is that about right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. Well, I bet there's a flyer during the break. There is a flyer, yeah, right there on, on the counter. It should be very interesting. Um, I read his book um, while I was away. It just—it's just been released, and <clears throat> it's a. Uh, it's very well done, very well done. He uh, compares the different views on the importance and value of samadhi and, and samatha, uh, uh, and he also does interviews with several different teachers who have, hold different views. He's got a lot of really solid information that is from the sutras and from the Vasudhi Magga, and he uh, clarifies some of the disagreements and, and the basis for them. So um, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll probably be very interesting. Maybe a little technical. I don't know, but I think I think it should be very interesting for people that are people that are very seriously involved in meditation. Good evening, Hisayo. Welcome. Good to see you. So anyway, I would encourage you if, if you if you think you have the time and you know to seriously consider read the flyer that's out there about the about the workshop and come and find out for yourself. Okay, well. If there's no questions, no further questions or anything, then why don't we...
Please have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. So what should we talk about? topic. So um, I guess I'll just sort of <clears throat> I, I'll just start skimming over it with it in mind that if some really interesting questions and discussion don't interrupt the flow, that I'll actually manage to, to at least cover the whole thing at an overview sort of level. But quite open to being interrupted at any point and going into some part more depth and continuing next time. Okay? So the Four Noble Truths. <clears throat> the first truth is the truth of Dukkha. And Dukkha, uh, there isn't a single word in our language that corresponds to Dukkha. Um, it, although uh, dissatisfactoriness or uh, um, unpleasantness, imperfection are all words that kind of have the same grip and, and the same flavor. Uh, it's most often translated as suffering because uh, the forms of dukkha that uh, the more uh, extreme forms of, of dukkha are, are the suffering that we experience in so many ways and of so many kinds. But it also includes the much subtler forms of unsatisfactoriness too. So that's an important thing to understand. The, uh, the first noble truth uh, is that dukkha permeates every aspect of uh, human existence, of, of phenomenal existence, human life is permeated by dukkha. Now when we say suffering permeates every, permeates every aspect of human existence, it, it's, it's a little bit hard to grasp. But when we really understand what dukkha is, 
then we can recognize that indeed suffering is an appropriate word, but uh, that there are many instances when it seems just the opposite, because of course there are a lot of things in, in life that seem pretty pretty good, pretty nice, pretty enjoyable. And, uh, so, first of all, we need to make a distinction when we talk about dukkha. Um, as dukkha means that which is unpleasant, <clears throat> and there's two kinds of things. There's two kinds of dukkha. There's the dukkha uh, that is experienced that arises uh, out of the from physical causes that arises from the body uh, that. Uh, is known through the sense organs. In other words, physical pain. Physical pain and unpleasantness that is directly related to sensory experience, such as an unpleasant sound or an unpleasant odor or any of the kinds of physical pain that we're familiar with. These are all dukkha of that kind. Then the other kind of dukkha is pain suffering, uh, misery, unhappiness, all these things, that arises in the mind. So uh, so the first kind of dukkha is only physical pain, that you, you know, the, the, the pain that's experienced as a sensation or as an unpleasant sensation. The other kind of dukkha is, that's the most severe and pervasive dukkha that we experience is the mental pain. Okay, does that make sense to you? It's clear what we're saying here? Okay. So as far as the physical pain parts of it, uh, birth is painful. We come into this world crying and our mothers uh, experience uh, pain giving birth to us. Physical pain occurs over and over again throughout life. It's pretty much unavoidable. We can go for stretches of time without it, but if, you know, if, you, if you're alive, it's only a matter of time before you experience pain again. Sickness is, is a kind of physical pain, and sickness is pretty much unavoidable. Aging involves pain, and the process of dying can be very painful. Many ways of dying are very painful. So in that sense, there is the physical pain associated with birth, uh, aging, old, uh, old age, and death. Then there is all, all of that mental pain, all the sorrow, the grieving, the loss, uh, the pain that comes from unfulfilled desires, all the different kinds of uh, pain of mental origin that we experience, or suffering of mental origin that, that we experience, either as a result of uh, physical discomfort or, in many cases, completely independent of anything that's physical. 
when when the Buddha was pre- presenting the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, he said that uh, all life is uh, uh, permeated with dukkha, and what is dukkha? It's, yeah, birth is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. And then he went on to list all the different kinds of mental dukkha. And then he sums it all up and says, in short, the five aggregates of clinging or grasping are dukkha. So that's one that we'll we'll come back to, the five aggregates of grasping, or the five aggregates, because that's also part of dependent origination. But anyway, um, this truth is not too hard to grasp, but it's really hard to convince ourselves of at a really deep level. Because the natural tendency is to keep uh, seeking pleasure and avoiding the unpleasant and clinging to the belief that somehow if we try hard enough, if we work hard enough, struggle long enough, uh, our... uh, unrestrained in what we're willing to do, that somehow we can create circumstances in which we're going to be predominantly happy um, and only minimally unhappy. And so even when we understand the truth, the absolute inescapability of dukkha in life, we keep behaving as if we didn't understand that. Now, physical pain unpleasantness arising due to the senses that's based in the body. This is absolutely unavoidable. If you live in a body, you'll experience physical pain. But all of that mental pain, which we'll call that suffering, all, all of that mental pain is not inevitable. It, is, it arises in the mind, and if we can understand the causes for its arising, then we have a chance, a hope, of doing something about it, of changing that. So it is, uh, the fact is, pain and pleasure of the senses are inevitable, but happiness and suffering are both optional. They're both a matter of choice. Yeah. I was just thinking that it seems like there's certain kinds of mental pain that might not be optional. Like, like what? If somebody dies or if somebody betrays you or treats you really badly or you know what I mean? There's certain kinds of pain that seem like that seems like there would be a certain amount of pain involved. There is Regardless a lot, of what your attitude towards There's a lot of suffering that cannot be overcome by attitude. There's a certain amount of suffering but, that okay. can be overcome by having a better understanding, mm-hmm. cultivating an attitude of, of acceptance, uh, through basically changing your attitude. But when we say that suffering is optional, what we're doing is, is we're going a whole step beyond. We're, we're saying that if you can understand the cause of suffering and 
Don't mean the cause of physical pain, but the cause of suffering. If you can understand the cause of suffering, then it's possible to eliminate the cause. And if you eliminate the cause, then you eliminate the suffering completely. So I let me let me just carry on and we'll get to that. Because you'll say, okay, somebody you love dies, how is that not going to make you suffer? Okay. Really big question. Really huge question. Feels like it's physical. I know that when I've had people like, "Oh, my mom died," it felt like it was a physical thing. It didn't feel like it was just an emotional thing. Oh well, yes. There's, there's no no question about that. That that all of the forms of mental suffering uh, produce. Uh, they have their physical side as well. Um, have you ever been so? Angry that you know your your body was on fire, your head was about to explode. And, you know, and, but but just keep this in mind. There's a distinction between pain and pleasure of the senses and suffering and happiness. Okay. The second truth that the Buddha taught was the cause of suffering. That craving is the cause of suffering. The word here is tana. And craving is a pretty, pretty good equivalent translation. Now, at first glance, it may appear craving, craving that's desire, craving that's greed, that's lust. But craving is also, craving is also uh, wanting pain to stop, or wanting something unpleasant to go away, or wanting something that you don't like to cease. So both the desire for pleasure and the wish to avoid pain are both forms of craving. As a matter of fact, when we look at it carefully, what craving involves in either case whether it's desire or aversion, it involves the deep wish that things are different than they are. You want something to be different than it is. So, we go back to uh, dukkha. Dukkha is, is... not getting what you want, that's the kind of suffering that comes from desire. And dukkha is having what you don't want, which is aversion, and that's a form of suffering. And so, it's basically any situation where you want things to be different than they are. And if you just want just slightly wish they were different than they are, then you probably wouldn't describe it as suffering, but you would describe it as dissatisfactoriness. But if you extremely wish they were different than they are, then you'd probably call it suffering. So craving is a cause of dissatisfactoriness and suffering. That's pretty logical and straightforward. What we're doing in this is we're we're rejecting what is. The third truth is that uh, 
the cessation of craving is the cessation of suffering. The destruction of craving is the cessation of suffering. Because if we look at dukkha and say, instead of using the word suffering, <coughs> use the word dissatisfactoriness. Dukkha is dissatisfactoriness. And craving is wanting things to be different than what they are. You see, they're really, they're two sides of the same thing. Craving is wanting things to be different than they are. We're experiencing desire and aversion. We want to have something we don't, or we want not to have something that we do. And dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction is exactly that. It's not being satisfied with what is. And extreme dissatisfaction is what we call suffering. So yes, craving, craving is the cause of suffering. And if you can overcome craving, then you can overcome suffering. You can't eliminate physical pain. But I should point out that the relationship between physical pain and suffering is an important one that we've already talked about before. And that uh, Shinzen Young has has his beautiful saying about is that suffering is pain times resistance Nothing times nothing is nothing. You do the math. Resistance is basically the craving. The craving is what turns pain into suffering, rather than it just being another sensation. So, so that's the that's the third truth: is the cessation of suffering. So we have suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the path to the cessation of suffering, or the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path has three divisions to it. The first division is morality, or virtue. That's the foundation. The second is, uh, is meditation. Uh, it's actually called samadhi, which means concentration or the bringing together of the mind. And the third division is wisdom. And as a matter of fact, virtue and meditation together constitute method uh, and wisdom. So you can divide up the Eightfold Path into two, method and wisdom. Then you can divide method into virtue and meditation. Wisdom being, wisdom being both a beginning and a final result. You need a little bit of wisdom to make you appreciate the value of the practice of virtue and the practice of meditation. But it just takes a minimal amount of, of wisdom to bring that about. And then, of course, the more study, the more dharma talks, the more books you read, and the more experience you have, your wisdom grows. But the virtue and the meditation, uh, the virtue allows the meditation to proceed to the point where uh, in, wisdom in the form of insight uh, arises. The supramundane insight into the uh, characteristics of phenomena 
and this gives, and, and that is, uh, they also give rise to insight into dependent origination, which is the way the way the want mind works and creates the reality that we live in that has this inescapable nature of suffering. Right. So if we go back, it's called the Eightfold Noble Path because there's eight parts to it. Virtue consists of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, which we've talked about before. And meditation consists of right effort, right concentration, and right mindful awareness. Those are the three parts to that. And, um, of course, we've talked a lot about concentration and mindful awareness, and, and we've been talking recently about right effort. Um, I think everybody already knows what right speech, right action, and right livelihood are, right? Um, right, and we probably have a pretty good idea of what right concentration and, and right mindful awareness are, although I'll tell you how the Buddha defined them. But first I'll start with right effort. Right effort is causing arisen, unwholesome states to pass away and causing unarisen, unwholesome states not to arise. Right effort is causing wholesome mental states that have arisen to remain and unwholesome or and uh, wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen to arise. Basically, all unwholesome mental states are all of those consisting of uh, desire and greed, lust, uh, ill will, hatred, jealousy, covetousness, uh, so on and so forth. And the wholesome mental states that we would like to see arise and remain in their place are generosity, loving kindness, compassion. So that's what right effort consists of, and it's a part of meditation. Right concentration was defined by the Buddha as the uh, jhanas. You know, he says, and what is right concentration? And then he defines the jhanas one by one, and uh, one through four, the four jhanas, and says, this is right concentration. And then the way he defines right mindful awareness is in terms of the four applications of mindfulness that are presented uh, in great detail in the Satipatthana Sutra, but which he mentions over and over again whenever the question of what's right mindfulness comes up. Right mindfulness is mindfulness of the body as an aggregate, mindfulness of the feelings as feelings. And by the way, the feelings are pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And it includes both pleasant and unpleasant that are physical in origin and pleasant and unpleasant that are mental in origin. So right mindful awareness is being aware of those, those natures of dukkha and sukha and edukkha e sukha edukkha ma the third aspect of right mindfulness is mindfulness of mental states 
which much of the emotions that we talk about, mental state. So, anger, fear, dread, greed, lust, confusion, but also concentration, equanimity, and uh, a mind that is experiencing uh, mindful awareness. These are also mental states. So, uh, the third third part of the definition of right mindfulness is mindful awareness of mental states as mental states. And then the fourth uh, is uh, mindful awareness of dhammas, which are phenomena or reality uh, as and and they're also mental objects so basically uh, he says uh, right mindfulness of the dhammas as dhamma which I would translate as right mindfulness of reality as mind created so that's the practice of right mindfulness so the division that's called meditation or concentration consists of of uh, overcoming unwholesome mental states and arousing wholesome mental states of concentration to the point of the jhanas and practicing the four applications of mindful awareness. Then these lead to the third division, which is wisdom. And wisdom is defined as uh, right right view and right intention or right uh, uh, intention and right understanding depending on how you uh, want to translate those words into English. But the one of them, the one that I would prefer to translate as intention is viewing all other beings as they really are. Suffering beings in a state of ignorance, acting out of ignorance, and creating their own suffering, and therefore viewing them with loving kindness and compassion. Part of it also is viewing yourself that way, understanding that you are no different than anyone else in this regard. And then right understanding is recognizing that what you regard as yourself is a, uh, a stream, an, an ongoing stream of conscious experiences in which there are uh, sensations, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness happening one right after another. That's what you are. That's what your whole existence consists of is a sequence of conscious experiences made up of these five components. And that the kind of experience that you have in each moment is determined by your past intentions and actions called karma. And the kind of experiences that you will have in the future are the result of your intentions and actions in the present moment. 
And finally, that uh, the reality that you live in is generated by this karmic process. Other ways that wisdom or right understanding are defined is in terms of the three characteristics. Right understanding is the understanding that everything is impermanent, that everything is empty, that uh, and what emptiness means is the uh, lacking in the nature of actually being the way it appears to be. So when we say that everything is empty, there's two parts to everything. There's the self and there's all the other phenomena that are not self. The self is empty of any nature of being as we experience it. There is no self or anatta. And all phenomena are empty of any nature of actually being the way we experience them. And that is sunyata. So anatta and sunyata are the emptiness. So that's the second characteristic. The third characteristic is the very first one we started out with, dukkha. That that this sequence of conscious experiences that unfolds the way it does is permeated inevitably by dukkha. It is unsatisfactory. It is ultimately unsatisfactory and uh, suffering. And then the ultimate aspect of right understanding is to see how this comes about, how the mind creates this illusion of self and this uh, uh, world of empty objects which are the cause of all of our suffering. And that's dependent origination. So, let me summarize this for you, just to remind you. The first truth is the truth of dukkha, a large part of which is suffering. The second truth is the end of dukkha, which means also the end of suffering. No, the, no sorry, the second truth is the cause of dukkha, sorry, cause, which is craving. The third truth is the end of dukkha, which comes about with the end of craving. And the fourth truth is this eightfold path with its three divisions, which leads to the end of suffering. And that eightfold path is right speech, right action, and right livelihood, which constitute virtue, right effort, right concentration, and right mindful awareness, which constitute meditation, and right uh, view and right understanding, which constitute wisdom. And when this path has been uh, completely followed, the result is enlightenment, awakening, liberation. It is enlightenment as to the true nature of reality. It is awakening from uh, the illusion that uh, is at the root of our suffering, and it is liberation from suffering. Okay? Now, to understand to understand this more fully, uh, then we'll look at the five aggregates of clinging and how uh, and the uh, 
12 links of dependent origination and how these two are related to each other. And we most especially need to look at the emptiness of self because what single thing more than anything else that is at the root of our problems is ignorance about the fact that our self is empty, that we are empty of the self as we perceive it. So, let's start, let's start with the perception of self. Okay. The roots the roots of our unwholesome thoughts and actions and behaviors are craving, which we've already seen, and ignorance. Craving consisting of desire and aversion and ignorance, okay? Can you see that? Uh, the ignorance, what is the ignorance part of it? The ignorance, and this is the only thing that allows craving to continue, is ignorance the ignorant belief that we are a separate, independent self. What our mind does, you see, is it takes the wholeness of what is. It takes the universe and it divides it into two parts. One is self and everything else is not self. And then the two end up being at war. The boundary between self and not-self is one characterized by craving, by desire and aversion. The self is wanting pleasure, gratification, and to avoid pain and suffering. So craving. And the way we normally function is, here's self, I'm me, the experiencer and the doer, and so I'm going to go out and do to not-self everything I possibly can in order that self can be rewarded with pleasure and avoid pain. So that's the very first fundamental thing we do, is we take the perfect wholeness of what is, divide it into two parts and set them at war with each other. Because as you've discovered... All of the not-self out there just doesn't want to cooperate with what the self wants, right? It's a constant struggle. Which is one more way of saying dukkha. All life is dukkha. All life is a constant struggle of trying to make all the stuff that's excluded from self meet the needs of the self. And that's ignorance. Because that self doesn't really exist. That boundary is one created by the mind. It's an imaginary boundary. It's an artificial one. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I'm wondering, I thought about this a lot, <clears throat> and understanding this as the mind conceptualizing mm-hmm. everything that that entails, that it has this reality to it as part of it. It's like, Whole thing coming. Yeah. 
Nonetheless, it's a game of sorts. And I see that it fits in beautifully with the, the idea of the, the idea. But what we can see is the expansion and contraction which Shinsenya teaches as well, I don't know how to say <coughs> But that that's like one of that's like a fundamental movement of the universe that is neither good nor bad or even neutral. So in that context, it seems to me that we could have duality without having war. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything inherent in me saying self and other mm -hmm. that causes uh, harm. Is there? That's my question. Is there, there is something inherent in the belief and that as being self-existently real. That's it, the problem. That's ignorance, and there's something yeah, inherent that's in that that causes harm. That I don't understand. That the ignorance? I don't understand how there's something inherent in that partition that causes harm. There's something inherent in the believing in that partition as representing reality. Yeah. That, that by, in, by itself causes harm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I need to think about that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, on the other hand, you know, uh, we create a lot of problems for ourselves by creating that boundary, but our mind creates all kinds of other boundaries. You know, don't and need to. That's my point. I don't see how it needs to. I could just be a concept, knowing I'm a concept. This is a game. Mm -hmm. The universe, I'm part of the universal game, or, my, or whatever, however you can't put it in words, but expansion and contraction. This is a contraction. Mm -hmm. Audrey is a contraction. She's part of the big... Right, because because the other thing sounds like just constant. Yeah, you're part you're part of everything. Yeah, we we look at else. we look at a cloud and we see a Buddha's face in the cloud, right? But the Buddha's face isn't really separate from the cloud. And we look at the world and we see a beautiful flower, but the flower is not really separate from the rest of the material world that it's part of. But the ability to see it is different. Gives us in both these cases gives us an experience of of, of beauty. Uh, the difference, one difference, is that if we see a Buddha in the cloud, uh, we recognize that this is something our mind has created, and we don't grieve when uh, a shift in the wind causes it to break up and disappear. Right? Yet when we see the flower die, then we feel sad. So that's just a simple illustration of it, it goes it goes very very deep, but it is the ignorance of the mind created. We cannot, you know, we cannot exist as we do as human beings without our mind creating reality the way it does and creating the sense of self as being separate the way it does. But our problem comes when we believe it's real, when we don't. And that's why it's the ignorance. It's the ignorance that uh, is at the root of it. As long as the ignorance is there, you see, as long as our ignorance is there, then we have the separation between self and other, and craving arises. And then, of course, we engage in actions we don't mind 
we don't mind uh, harming not self in order to create more satisfaction for self. Because there's a logic to that. If you believe in the difference, there's a logic to that action. Right? And of course, there's the ignorance that that action too brings consequences. And that you know, it ultimately isn't successful uh, at, at that level. It's no more successful than if I cut off one of the fingers on this hand to stick it on this hand so this one has six. You know? I wouldn't be better off. But we think we think we would be by taking away from not self to uh, to uh, enrich self. Hmm. I had a question because in some ways this all sounds really intellectual, and I'm like, I was thinking about what you were talking about pain, emotional and physical, and other things. It's like physical pain is like a signal, you know, about they need to do something. Like today yeah, I was right. walking around barefoot and I stepped out a couple of thorns, you know. Right. So uh, it's like the signal to pull them out, you know, because <laughs> otherwise they get infected in your foot. And there are people that actually don't feel physical pain. That's right. And they don't live as long because mm-hmm. the most interesting thing is they don't do just ordinary things like shift their weight when it hurts because mm-hmm. they don't feel the hurt and then they cause mm-hmm. damage to their nerves and bones and stuff. Yeah, and true. then it's like physical, like emotions tell you something too. They're like a shortcut to making decisions. Mm-hmm. And you know, if something is, somebody is really unpleasant to be around, your emotions are like, that person's not good for you, go away. <laughs> but they've also found that there's some people that don't feel their emotions. You know, there's certain kinds of brain damage that can cause people not to feel their emotions consciously. And those people don't know how to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Those people just get totally like they're just lost, kind of. Mm-hmm. And um, it also seems like intellectual ideas, like, you know, morality or um, how does the world work, those help you kind of navigate things, you know, and make decisions and stuff. So I'm like, well, okay, so if you have this different idea about all this stuff and it's just craving and whatever, then how on earth do you make any kind of decisions? <laughs> you know, I mean, it seems to me like they're necessary in a way. All that stuff is kind of like, I don't see how you would like, you know, you have a craving for food and you eat. If you don't, you're going to die. You know, I don't understand how you would function without having those things. Yeah. So the, the, the last thing is wisdom. Wisdom can replace ignorance and it functions a lot better than blind emotion. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, you just have to look out, have to go out in the street and immediately you can tell that emotion has a way of making uh, uh, discriminatory choices for our actions produces a lot of uh, unwholesome results as well. Let's look at pain though. This is uh, physical pain. This is a question that has intrigued uh, scientists and and medical people is that what is the purpose of pain? And the obvious answer is that pain protects the body by warning us when there is damage or cause of damage. Now that's obvious, right? You step on a thorn and the pain uh, tells you uh, to, to stop stepping there or to do something about it. You burn yourself and the pain tells you to not touch the hot object to keep tissue damage from happening. But if you examine this closely, as anybody in the medical profession discovers very quickly, as... as uh, you can probably figure out yourself by reflecting. <clears throat> Most of the kinds of pain 
that actually alert us to danger and protect the body are amongst the relatively uh, mildest and, and easiest to deal with. But, uh, you know, what purpose does the pain of uh, arthritis cause? Yeah, that's like that. Sir. As a matter of fact, most of the most severe pain that people serve is not has nothing to do with that. There's nothing they can do has nothing to do with protecting the body. Uh, severe sciatic pain. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it doesn't it's it's gone way beyond protecting the body. It could have stopped, you know, way back early <laughs> on. He said, "Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think those are like." sort of malfunctions of the pain system, but if you got rid of the pain system altogether, you'd have a, you wouldn't survive, you know? Yeah. They, they are... Malfunctions and causes all sorts of suffering, but if it didn't exist, I don't know how you would physically survive. Pain and pleasure, and this is an important thing to understand, pain and pleasure and the desire and aversion that they give rise to they exist in us because they have tremendous evolutionary value. Mm-hmm. They have been conserved and developed because they serve. Mm-hmm. They serve the purposes of, of nature in a larger sense. That doesn't mean they serve us as individuals particularly. right? But. Those things that cause us pleasure and that therefore we desire, uh, uh, by and large, the reason that we experience them as pleasurable is that they are beneficial to us. And those things that cause us pain, you know, whether it's physical pain of stepping on a, a thorn or any other kind of unpleasant experience, we experience those things as unpleasant because they have the potential to harm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then our, our brain and our mind, our brain is wired so that our mind reacts with desire and aversion. And even those things like greed and uh, covetousness, uh, anger, um, all kinds of things like that, actually are, they exist because they're serving a purpose. Uh, in in appropriate doses or appropriate amounts, mm-hmm. they enhance the ability uh, of uh, an indi- individual that possesses those characteristics to uh, survive and produce offspring, which is basically what evolution is. Evolution is whatever whatever <laughs> survives and reproduces itself the mostest, that's what there is the mostest of around, until anything different than that doesn't exist anymore. And so, as human beings, subject to uh, inclinations for aggression, uh, force, taking what we want, uh, avoidance, uh, suspicion, uh, fear of people that are different and things that are different and unknown, uh, anger, hatred, all of these things. Uh, the reason that those are present in our mind is because 
they're the re- result of evolutionary processes. Mm-hmm. You go back, uh, you go back in our, our, our history, uh, uh, mankind before civilization, and then pre-hominids, and then uh, you know the uh, various kinds of, uh, of uh, ancestral forms that preceded that. And you find that those behaviors, you know, at least in modest amounts, mm-hmm. were conducive to greater survival and reproduction, and that's that's simply why they're there. But what we're about doing is going beyond that. Yeah, and I guess my question is, if you have this radical change of your relationship to all that, because one mistake I see is that people reject all that stuff and say it's bad, and that doesn't seem. That's just sort of a hijacking of the process in a way, I think. Well, if you, if you reject it all as bad, that's naive. Mm-hmm. Right? On the other hand, if you, if you say, well, it's natural, so it's okay. It's natural for people to be greedy. Well, it is natural for people to be greedy, but look what's happened to our economy just recently because of it. You know. No, but I guess I'm wondering, like, what replaces it then? What what replaces that survival function? If you change it all, then how do you uh, know? Well, okay. How do you survive? <laughs> That's the question, I guess. All right, we we have we have these roots: uh, craving and ignorance. Ignorance is the big one here. I mean, desire and aversion are both craving, right? So, we often say there's three three karmic roots: desire, aversion, and ignorance. The one we need to change is ignorance. When you change ignorance to wisdom and uh, desire to generosity and uh, aversion to loving kindness and compassion, then you have a kind of being that can function very, very well, but has to have the capacity to replace ignorance with wisdom and therefore have wisdom guide in situations uh, rather than uh, these, these blind compulsions of, uh, of uh, greed and, uh, and, and anger or hatred, right? Hmm. Through, because human beings have a capacity. We can, we can, make, we can recognize dangers we don't have to be dependent upon uh, on uh, emotions that arise. That's where I would totally disagree because I think the intellectual, like those people that they couldn't feel their emotions from whatever the brain things, they intellectually knew everything, but they still they couldn't. They were just lost. Well, we never so said, I, I we think never the said that wisdom is the same thing as intellectual enough. understanding. Yeah, I think it's like a different take on all these things, mm-hmm. and those things don't really. Somebody who doesn't have emotions can't make decisions because they don't have another basis. But, you know, we've asked this question before. What is the basis? Why why does the Buddha get out of bed in the morning? (laughs) And it's because instead of of getting out of bed uh, in order to uh, pursue desire and and, uh, experience aversion, gets out of bed in order to... uh, uh, out of out of a spirit of loving kindness and compassion, and to to practice generosity and has wisdom as a guide.
You don't think that it's possible for somebody to have enough wisdom to discriminate? No, I'm thinking about it because I'm thinking like... All those things might still operate, but it's just like a different perspective on them that changes. It's like... Like wisdom is emotions maybe, but it's like a different perspective on them or something. It's like it's like all those things, they have to continue to operate, I would think. But that one's... Well, I, I, uh, there are people who have thought that that was true, and they, you know, they, there's there's kind of a myth that still circulates in in some Buddhist societies that when a person becomes uh, a non-returner or an arhat, achieves a third or fourth stages of enlightenment, that they have to become a bhikkhu right away because they can't survive in the world. And in the ordinary world. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you see, that's... If, uh, if the, uh, the... The Buddha certainly didn't have a problem, did he? No, that's why I'm thinking that... That's why I'm thinking that yeah. those things uh, don't disappear, they just become... You just come into a different relationship with them. That makes more sense to me to think of it that way. Okay, well, those that's things fine. disappear, you wouldn't have any... You'd be lost, you know, but you come into like a different relationship with that. Like I'm sure Buddha knew better than to like, you know, walk off a cliff or something. <laughs> he obviously did. He survived for forty five years. A lot of cliffs. So in some ways those systems survived, but they were he was they were like in a different mm-hmm. relationship to them or something. Well yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Okay, he's in a different relationship. He doesn't stop having a human brain. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know. And the same thing. You don't stop experiencing pain, but you don't have to suffer because of it. And you can still understand to, to uh, not step on the thorn or not to hold on to the hot uh, object because of physical pain. But you don't have to experience uh, a lot of suffering because of it. But it's not all intellectualized, though. You don't understand everything in this totally intellectualized way. No, no, no. So no. all the emotions and all the physical stuff, that doesn't go away. No, we, you don't become this totally intellectual cerebral being. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't survive, you know? The wisdom is overcoming ignorance, and ignorance is believing in things that are not true. Ignorance is believing in illusion. So it's not a question... It's not a question that an enlightened person uh, turns into some strange creature that is not capable of experiencing uh, uh, any normal human reactions, but they don't—they don't experience them in the same way. Mm-hmm. It's like a different yeah. relationship. Um, I was just thinking along those lines because I, you know, I struggle in my day-to-day life, not overly like. Over, that dichotomy of overly intellectualizing versus living out of your emotions. Right. You know, living from the gut versus right. analyzing everything to death. And um, and I don't. I mean, for me, like the closest experience I've had with egolessness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I achieved anything near that with meditation, but actually, when I'm falling asleep, mm-hmm. this is point right before I enter dream, like mm-hmm. the dream, like the unconscious state, and then go into dream. But before I go into conscious. There's this period um, where experience is still pretty vivid, but my ego does drop out of the equation, and I'm, things aren't filtered through my ego. It's my favorite part of the day. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and and when I was thinking about that experience, while it's not interacting directly with with my sense environment, um, it's it's still it still has you know emotional valence and all that, but it's it's much more vivid actually. 
than the way I experience the world as an ego. It's much mm -hmm. less, it's much less rigid and narrow. Yeah. When I think of oh being overly intellectual, overanalyzing, overrationalizing, etc., I think of this very narrow framework in which I try to fit everything. Um, and it's not that at all. It's the exact opposite. It's like you know everything's blown open and it's just pure it's pure experience. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not indiscriminate either. Mm -hmm. um, so I can discern mm -hmm. in that state all these different yeah. feelings and all the different senses. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. That's I was just thinking. Um, I think it's great, and <laughs> <laughs> like, to, like to live in that day of my waking life, but <laughs> anyway. But let's say, I, 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 let me, we, we won't yet stay on this too much longer, but I want to give you one example, okay? When somebody does something that hurts or offends you, don't you usually, you, you see them as kind of malevolent and purposeful uh, in, in their hurting of you. Isn't that... Unless it's like, well, sometimes it's pretty clear that they were just stupid and ignorant, but sometimes, yeah. yeah <laughs> it just kind of depends on the, the tendency. Situation. The tendency is to picture them in, in your mind in a way that allows you to feel really angry and resentful and, you know, perhaps mm -hmm. under some circumstances would allow you to feel okay about picking up a stick and bothering right? <laughs> Usually it's a verbal stick, but okay. <laughs> yeah, or a verbal stick, right. Whatever. But, and is it not the case that, that when we examine ourselves closely and when we examine other people closely, we realize that people aren't really the way that we picture them when we've been hurt by them we imagine them in a way that it makes it easier for us to hit them with a stick, but it's not really the way that they are. I don't know. People Compassion people would be seeing them more the way they really are. Where are they coming from? That whatever they've done, almost certainly, they've done it because, you know, and, and, and we usually know this much, they, they've done it because uh, they're, uh, in, in some way, they are suffering and they're trying to relieve their own suffering. I don't know. This seems like really bad stuff, I guess. There's people that like get off on doing really bad stuff to people. They enjoy it. It gives them pleasure. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it's right. gross, but it's true. Right. Even the worst things you can imagine, there's people mm -hmm. that they just enjoy it. You know, that's why they do it. That's why rape is rapes, because he enjoys it, you know. So, I don't know. <laughs> people... Yeah, it's, isn't that what I'm saying? They're trying. They're looking for some way out of their own. They're doing the same thing. But they're not all necessarily all suffering. The, the crazy thing is that some people like that, like say child molesters and rapists and stuff. The people that are abused by them suffer way more than they do. They just kind of enjoy it. It's really weird, but it's unfortunately seems to be true. <laughs> well, and there <laughs> there are some people that you know in a in a society of enlightened beings that probably would still be uh, uh, some people like that and they would have to do something other than just let them go around. Yeah, I mean, you can say that on some level. Yeah, if you're totally enlightened and you really, really have this really deep happiness, you're not going to go around and do stuff like that. But some people that do stuff like that... No, 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 I'm saying... No, I'm not talking... You're, you're missing my point. All right, so we're a whole group of enlightened people and we encounter somebody that's like that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
just because we can see them with compassion doesn't mean that we can't see the danger that they are and feel like we have to do something about them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we don't have to feel hatred, do we? I'm not sure. Well, why? Why do we have to feel hatred? Well, okay, you're not sure. That's all right. You, like gives you, the you power just go like ahead, go ahead, and be not sure. But consider the possibility that the same result can be achieved without the hatred. Mm-hmm. And especially if you look at all the harm the hatred does when it gets directed at people that don't really fit that description. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, most of the people you've ever gotten angry at, and and at least the ones you've hit with a verbal stick didn't really fit in that category, even, yeah, even, bit, like, even though some may have. And so look at the harm that comes situation. from hatred and ignorance. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then also look at the fact, that, or at least entertain the fact, that maybe there's another way that you could even deal with the people like that from, from a standpoint of compassion without needing yourself to experience hatred. And also examine how hatred makes you feel. Mm-hmm. Not only did the hatred that arose, even if it's momentarily, and caused you to do things that were not appropriate at times, that also made you feel bad afterwards. And, of course, what comes or, what goes around comes around. You've been on the other end of it as well. So just consider the possibility that maybe we don't have to have hatred as the only means that we have of dealing with people like the ones you described. Maybe yeah, I guess I'm just not sure if it would be enough, you know, because there's other people that are Okay, well, you go ahead and consider the possibility there's not enough. I don't know if it would be enough to actually give people the energy to stop that yes, kind of ma'am? stuff. Or if they just say, oh, that's too bad, just go on. And, I don't know, I'm not sure. And this may not be timely, but I'm going to suggest a, a leap here. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that there is another kind of uh, I don't quite know what word to use. Suffering is, is probably not the right word. But a, a, a kind of human inner sense that um, uh, you mentioned the emptiness, mm-hmm. that, 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 that perhaps if... It's, it seems my understanding is that the Buddhist view of the universe is it's a very dispersed. There is not a center point that that some might call God or or an originator of it. That 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 every single thing, every emotion, every tickle, every pain, every human interaction, every 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 everything is the result of a backlog <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. of eons of one thing tripping, another tripping, another, and it's going in in this three-dimensional thing that goes on forever. So, it seems that if one really grasps that and thinks about that and perceives one's own existence in the midst of all of that, that that is, is the word nihilistic? I mean, I mean, I'm not, I forget that word. Um, that I mean, that could be a source of pain of a certain kind. And it also seems by extension that maybe that's why societies, cultures, all through 
all through history, we have created a selfhood, only a very big self, in the form of a god, of a center, a, pin, a, set, a pivot point out of which things come. It's a much more comfortable way to live yeah, right. one's life. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to be another kind of pain in a sense. I mean, one can feel quite dispersed and, I mean, what's it all for and all of that. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to wrap your, if, if you wrap your head around that, you have to come to some sort of way to exist with that. That tends to be the way I feel about how things are, are arranged. Um, but uh, does that start to get, I mean, that three-dimensional dispersion, that, that, that emptiness of a core, start to get at the root of another way of looking at dependent origination? It certainly does, yeah. The, um, Yes, it does. So you want to get back to dependent origination here? Well, and, and, <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're wrapping, you're, 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 you're approaching it in a certain way, and I don't mean to, to leap yeah. into it. it no, and, and, uh, but somehow yeah. and I think we're going to have to really get into dependent origination, probably, next week. But... What I was hoping to, to do is at least to, to set a ground. That, now, Terry, you know, there's, your, your questions are really good ones. Her, her questions are really good ones. You know, they, and probably more than anything else, this is, these are the kinds of questions that would make somebody hesitate to embrace a philosophy of love. Right? And and it comes it comes out of of pain. It comes out of having been hurt, and it comes out of fear, and it comes out of uh, seeing that there are those causes for pain in the world, and uh, you know there's there's reasons for that that fear. So it's a really it, it's a really big uh, suggestion to say that somehow we could go completely beyond those things and uh, to a, a philosophy of, of love. And that's fine. Nobody needs to make that leap right away. And as a matter of fact, even somebody who is really, who seems like they can do it, like, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. The thing is that you still have, you mm -hmm. still have those instincts in the core of your being that give rise to those emotions. So even though you feel like you're unhesitatingly embracing a philosophy of love, you'll f if nothing else changes, you'll find yourself in situations where, at least in, in that situation at that time, your belief in, in that philosophy falls apart. So you're, it's, you're, just, you're just more aware or something that's at the core of all of us. This is, we all have a way of understanding things imposed upon us by the way our minds work. And what you're saying is absolutely logical in terms of that view and understanding 
that our minds have been working on since the day we were born. But, and what I'm suggesting is a reality that's completely different than that, and that's the part that's hard to grasp. You see, if we consider a world of objects and beings that are separate from us, and here we are as a separate entity in the middle of that universe of of self-existent beings, then the logic of these kinds of the logic of that situation is exactly the kind of thing that you're saying. Hmm. But if that's not true, if that's not the way things really are, then another logic becomes possible. But only if that's not the way things really are. Hmm. Right? But I was thinking of some people that do talk about they want to see the world as like decent, you know, and fair and all whatever. And it causes damage. That philosophy actually causes them to be hurtful. Like you get these new age people and stuff, and they say some of these things. Like you know what I mean? It's like it's like in a sense, it's almost like their desire for things to be nicer than they seem to be actually causes them to be like painful to people who are like, wait a minute, it's not that way. You know? I mean, that can happen. I've seen it happen. It's like yeah. it's like really. Right. It's just amazing the amounts of. And it goes in all different directions, how much people can fool themselves is kind of mind-boggling. Anyway, we're trying to follow a particular course of thought and a path that leads to a different result. Mm-hmm. Because, because the one that everybody's been following up to now, this it's got us into a situation where there's an incredible amount of suffering war, cruelty, unhappiness. Here we are in, uh, in spite of recent events, uh, I, I agree with Obama, this is still the most prosperous nation in the world, mm-hmm. but there's so much suffering everywhere. you know. So, uh, that, that particular view of the way things are definitely doesn't work too well. We have to agree with the Buddha that that particular view if that's the way it is, then all life is suffering. So our only hope, you see, if we accept that, it's either we either plunge into despair and hopelessness, or we we hope that there is some alternative, which is exactly what it means to say that we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. What we're taking refuge from is exactly this view with its consequences. What we're experiencing, and when we examine it very, very carefully with you know, the, the greatest intellectual acumen that we're capable of and analyze it, we come to the conclusion that, oh, this is, you know, how, how can it ever be different? So. And, it, and, and it's rather despairing and disappointing. Life is pointless. You're born, you know, you, you struggle, you suffer. Uh, there's a few good times along the way, and you get sick and old, and uh, die of some terrible, painful process. And that's it. And if you had kids, they're just going to go through the same thing, and uh, it just doesn't get any better. So that's what we're taking refuge from. 
And what we're taking, and we're taking refuge in the Buddha because we're taking refuge in the awakening of the Buddha, which produces a completely different view with a different result. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I guess I can see that. And I guess my thing is. But you're doing exactly. I really like deny my own personal experience. You know what I mean? It's like you can't, and a lot of people want to. Everybody wants to. You're doing exactly what the Buddha wants you to do, which mm-hmm. is to question everything and prove it to yourself. Now, if you question everything and walk away, you haven't done. You haven't done what the Buddha was hoping <laughs> you would do. But if you question everything and then investigate it for yourself and test it for yourself, then you're doing just exactly what you're supposed to do. Yeah, because sometimes I find it's hard. It's like people make all these promises, and then in order to do that, fit into their little viewpoint, I have to like say yeah. my life didn't really happen. <laughs> it's and really weird. It seems you know, like that. Viewpoints are not the answer. It's not. It's not nice ideas and attitudes and things like that that's going to make the difference. Has I have? Sometimes that is the wisest choice. Yeah. Right. But yeah, you're, but the point is that the way, however the person is, it's your reaction to how the person is that's making you suffer. Right. I, I don't understand that. I'm just saying, yeah. like, the, there's, I just feel like there's these practical choices that not necessarily fit in nicely into a model of complete, you know, within the year. Right. Yeah. But you can imagine what it would be like if you had complete equanimity, right. so that you were not affected. You 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 were not caused to suffer by what the other person did. Instead, you were able to make some some clear choice, like whether to stay around or not, or, or whatever your choice you did that you wouldn't be at the mercy of your emotional reactions for the sake of your uh, your happiness. Because this is the kind of, this is the most common kind of situation we have, right? That we uh, it's other people that cause so much of our suffering. And it's the things that other people do. And then we uh, why do we put ourselves in situations where this can happen? Or why do we stay in situations where this does happen? Well, it's because we have our own 
desires and aversions that we choose to. We choose to because we want this result and we make the decision that that we're going to endure this misery because of this, this thing that we want. We stuck. And, but, you see, all that we're talking about here is removing the, uh, the suffering component that's generated in our own mind. And then, whatever we do about the situation or the other people, then uh, that comes from a place of wisdom, reason, compassion, all of these different factors, uh, uh, what you do or what you don't do, then comes from a lot of wholesome uh, motivations. A Buddha, the Buddha, if you read the sutras, found himself in, in, in many unpleasant situations that are clearly recounted. But the difference, the difference is that uh, in the process of deciding how to deal with the situation and dealing with it in whatever way that he did, he didn't need to experience suffering. That That's the one thing that we're talking about here. So we go for refuge to the Buddha. Hopefully the, the, the Dharma teaching is true. Hopefully it is possible to overcome craving. And if we do overcome craving, that we will no longer experience suffering. And then... Our life, you know, before enlightenment, chakra would carry water. After enlightenment, chakra would carry water. Life will go on much the same way. The one difference being, uh, or two differences. One is the suffering we experience internally, and the second will be the suffering we inflict out of our own uh, uh, desire, aversion, and ignorance. That's that's what that's the change that we're talking about. That's what we're hoping that can be achieved. But we're also pointing out that we can see as long as we're attached to this view of me, myself, an I, uh, who is experiencing the suffering, or who has the potential to experience the, the pleasure, and who is the doer and can do in reaction to it, as long as we're attached to that view, we're going to experience desire and aversion. They, they, they go together. As soon as, as soon as the universe is divided into self and not-self, then there is the struggle between the two. And anytime some part of the not-self is doing something that the self doesn't want, then the self experiences suffering. So, we, even in the best of times when we're, when we're enjoying great pleasure, it's going to pass away. Everything's going to be lost. So that's the inherent truth in the situation. And even while you're enjoying the greatest pleasure you can imagine, if the thought occurs to you that you're going to lose it, you'll want to hold on to it. And if you have that thought, and if you try to grasp onto it, you will lose the pleasure. I mean, if it was this good, all of a sudden it's this good. <laughs> I mean, you've experienced that, right? That's that's what happens. That's the reality of it. So, um, but the fact is that the pleasure is always going to go away, uh, and some kind of 
something that, that we could potentially be averse to is going to come up, you know. So the only solution, that's the only solution to the problem is in the mind's reaction to it. And it's to come to a place where you meet whatever happens with equanimity instead of suffering. And a key part of that is recognizing that the the reality that your mind creates of this division between self and a world of other objects that are sources of pleasure and pain, that you have that you have to go beyond that. You do have to go beyond that. Wisdom wisdom lies in getting beyond that. The interesting thing that happens, you know, if you you've got you've got the universe and you divide it into self and not self, and then you start doing the practices and not self grows and self shrinks. You keep taking stuff from inside the self boundary and putting it outside. You know, the the body. Uh, Usually by the time we become adults, we have taken the body from inside the self boundary, we put it just outside, we call it mind. But we don't feel so much like we're that self anymore. But we we are our minds, right? But that seems like a total illusion to me, that's like... I don't know. I don't we we, we draw the line differently and we say we are our minds. But anyway, as we keep taking stuff out, what we end up with, at some point, there's nothing left in, inside the boundary. It's all not self. And at that point, you've lost yourself, but you've gained the universe. And, you know, you really have gained the universe. Isn't, isn't that the very core of compassion? It is. That's the very core of it. Exactly. Yeah. Loving kindness and compassion come right from that realization. Yeah. Because your boundaries fuzz out, in a sense. Yeah. That's another way we could look at it. Keep making the boundary bigger, you know. So, I'm... I'm all of you, and I love you, and you're me. And, and as a matter of fact, everybody in this city, I love them. And then we push it out further. And we do this as loving kindness meditation, right? Meditation. The whole country, the whole continent, you know, just send love to everybody in the continent. Expand that boundary outward. That's the other way we can do it. We, we, but both ways are leading to the same result. Eventually, when the boundary includes everything, you have the same effect. But when we talk about, we're going to come back next week and we'll talk about dependent origination and we'll see how that's describing the process where we we make this distinction between self and not self. And it gives rise to craving and once the craving's there, the suffering is inevitable. You know, the... The, the, the craving, the distinctions, and it just perpetuates itself. It, one thing leads to another, leads to another, and it's like a cycle. It goes on and on and on, over and over again, moment by moment. And the practice is about breaking the cycle long enough to see things as they really are. 
to, to penetrate beyond the illusion. And then once you have, once you've penetrated beyond the illusion, then yes, your mind's still going to divide reality up into uh, a world of objects and a self. But you don't have to be fooled by it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to react emotionally based on, see, the worst part is, is this, this feeling that I, I'm me and I am the way I am and I can't change. And uh, these things are incontrovertibly the way they are. And, uh, you know, what I can do about them is very limited. So, so I, I do my best to manipulate everything in the hopes that uh, it will work out. Hmm. I hope you don't mind me asking another question. <laughs> I was thinking about this stuff about the meta meditations and stuff because it seems like it's easy to fool yourself about that, about how you feel, and to imagine that you feel that way, and then you know, oh, I feel love to the whole world, and then some drunk person comes up to you. And, give me a garter and steps on your foot and you're like, you know? <laughs> it seems like it's very easy to fool the self about that. And it seems like it's, um, also true, like, you can do it about equanimity too. Like, oh, above all this stuff. And it's not really true. It's just all a fantasy, you know? Or, and then also sometimes there's feelings that are like, like, this is one person I know that I kind of do feel love for her, and at the same time, it's like, I don't even want to get anywhere near her. It's really weird. <laughs> you can have both those things at the same time. It just seems to me like it's just really important not to fool yourself, you know, just to really not to try to be anything you're not, or not to try to fool yourself about all this stuff. Yeah. But don't you find that your, your reaction to a drunk asking you to a quarter for a quarter can take many forms that at different times and it would probably be different after you just finished doing a meta meditation yeah it does I'm not saying this stuff is useless I'm just saying that it seems to be an area where it's just really easy to fool yourself and and, and okay but if you if you accept the if you accept the hypothesis that you're already fooling yourself you can at least start by fooling yourself in a better way well I don't know because I mean I went to this Christian school and they all talked about love and it was a total hellhole and it was like very destructive you know it wasn't helpful it was like a horrible place Mm -hmm. so I don't know I don't know that that's better you know yeah if if you're if you're working from a quiet mind if you if you meditate aren't you a little wiser can't you perceive a uh, how to behave in a bad situation quicker. Uh, I I remember a story about a a Japanese samurai who was going to kill someone who had insulted his master or something like that. He was just doing a job as it were. And uh, the man uh, spat in his face and it angered the samurai. He couldn't kill him because he was in a state of anger then. Maybe he killed him later, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite a few seen here quite a few examples like that. I mean I even see examples like that in the court systems in America where you know, a sociopath might be sentenced to death for multiple egregious crimes, but it's not because we're mad at him so much as because he's a menace. Mm-hmm. So the emotionality doesn't have to be attached to that. And yeah. 
Although science may help that sociopath, someday it hasn't done so yet. Yeah. Now, is that the kind of, just kind of get the emotion out of it? It doesn't mean things don't happen. That's right. It doesn't mean things don't happen. But you get the, you get the negative emotion out of it, you get the uncontrolled reactions out of it. And bring, bring wisdom, you can't go wrong bringing wisdom and compassion into any situation. There's just absolutely no way. <laughs> Even in the most worldly sense, you don't have to be a Buddha, you know, you, but in any situation, there's a degree that you can bring clear understanding, that kind of wisdom, and, and compassion in the situation. It won't impair you from doing what needs to be done, but allow you to be do it in a much better way. So, uh, it's already past time. <laughs> so, we, and we, we did get to dependent origination, so tune in next week for the startling conclusion. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. I'm really so glad to be back with you. I feel like we're having a really good talk here, getting getting into some good things. So I hope I hope we continue the next week. Thank you very much. <laughs>